Holy Father, thank you, Lord, for this time. Thank you, Father, for the uh, the ears of those who would hear today. Thank you, Father, for the uh, opportunity to be changed by your word. Father, every day we live on this earth while we wait for the glorification you promise, we are called to be more like you one day at a time. And Father, you, uh, you've given us the engine to prompt that change in, in the Holy Spirit within each of us. And you've told us in your word that it is the word of God that is the fuel for that engine, the sword of the Spirit, Father. So we devote ourselves to its study so that it might do the good work that the Holy Spirit desires to do. And today, Father, is one more step along that walk of faith, and we pray that you would make it a big step, if possible, today, Father, something that might change us and prompt us on to holiness in some new way in our lives, to a better witness, Father, and uh, to encouragement, Father, to something that would give us even greater reason to look forward to the hope that you've given us in Christ. And thank you for the time this morning. In Jesus' name, amen. All right, well, 216 through 217, or through 219 were the last verses I read last week. Uh, when we had covered these verses, we saw Paul uh, beginning an assault on those who had taught falsely in this church in Colossae. And he had earlier, if you remember in chapter 2, had referred to the empty philosophies and the empty traditions that were making up the general tone of the teaching that was coming into this church. He said that these Judaizers who were trying to bring back the law, bring back human tradition and philosophy, stood in opposition to a trust in Christ. And he put those two in opposition for a reason. To say to the church that you cannot have a mixture of belief and call it the faith that you've been given by Paul and by others. It is either a true faith and dependence on Christ, or it is something false. And in the way they have been playing at the margins of their faith and allowing some false, these false teachers to begin to erode their confidence and trust in faith in Christ alone, they were playing with fire. And he had already espoused what it meant to trust in Christ, and studied that. Then he began to talk about what it meant to trust in these false traditions and philosophies. That was the, the, the genesis of chapter 2, verses 16 through 19. We looked last time at verse 17, where Paul said that these things that they had trusted in, things like what food you could eat, what drink you could drink, what festivals or moons or Sabbaths you respected, those were all, he said, mere shadows of the things that were found in substance in Christ, which means they were given in the Old Testament in their original form, in their original day, to point to Christ. There's a framework for the Bible that you can use to kind of give yourself the big picture of how it all fits together. The Old Testament was Christ predicted. The, the Gospels are Christ revealed. The Acts are Christ preached. The Epistles are Christ explained. And the Revelation is Christ expected. And what he is saying is those things that were in the Old Testament that were Christ predicted were fulfilled when he arrived. So to continue observing the shadow when you've already received the real thing means that you have not identified the real thing. You've not recognized the real thing. You are still worshiping the lesser rather than the greater. Finally, we ended last time with this brief mention of how they were submitting, when they submitted to this kind of teaching, this kind of false teaching, to legalism, basically. They were allowing someone to defraud them of their prize. Now, when we looked at that last week, we just started to talk about it. I want to make sure that we understand what Paul is referring to there. The prize is not your salvation. Although those who have trusted in these false teachings, rather than in Christ, are lacking the salvation that faith brings, to be sure. But if you have trusted in Christ and then find your liberty being eroded by teaching that draws you back into a legalistic lifestyle, then what you're defrauding, being defrauded of, is your prize of liberty. The prize of freedom in Christ, of the fact that now there are no dietary restrictions for someone who is in Christ. There are no Sabbath rules for someone who is in Christ. There are no festival limitations or mandates. That's liberty. You do as Christ through the Holy Spirit leads you to do in all of those areas of your life. And you don't necessarily care whether or not others in the faith mirror your choices and decisions in that respect. There can be differences. That's what liberty means. So he is saying, when you allow these false teachers to bring back to mind restrictions about what you eat, what you drink, festivals, moons, etc., you are allowing them to defraud you of your prize, which is liberty in Christ, having come to faith. Picking up from there, let's move quickly through the end of chapter 2 and into chapter 3. We're going to start by focusing on chapter 2, verse 16. Therefore, no one is to act as your judge in regard to food or drink or in respect to a festival or a new moon or a Sabbath day. Things which are a mere shadow of what is to come, but the substance belongs to Christ. Let no one keep defrauding you of your prize by delighting in self-abasement and the worship of the angels, 
taking his stand on visions he has seen, inflated without cause by his fleshly mind, and not holding fast to the head from whom the entire body, being supplied and held together by the joints and ligaments, grows with a growth which is from God. So let's finish this little passage with looking at verse 18 and a couple of things we did not cover last week. What were the tendencies of these false teachers in Paul's day? And, and this is a useful examination because you may find, as I have, some very interesting parallels to teaching you may have encountered today in some respect, not necessarily here in this church, but in the world generally. First of all, self-abasement. Tepi anofrensuno in the Greek, which is a big fancy word in the Greek, but it basically means this. Either it could mean self-denial or it can mean false humility. They're synonyms. So you have to look at the context, and really either one works in this context. In the case of self-denial, Paul's saying that these false teachers were following a practice of denying themselves certain things they wanted. They would restrict themselves from eating certain things or drinking certain things. The reason for the restriction was a false understanding that if I did that to myself, I gained merit with God. I'm earning something in, in the case of my self-denial, which is really what? Work. It's a work. It's another form of works. In this case, it was a work of self-denial rather than a work of accomplishment. But in either case, the thinking behind it is the same. I am earning merit with God, which we know is a work, and if that were the way we were saved, then faith would... We know is a work, and if that were the way we were saved, then faith would, Paul says. False humility, in this case, if that's what Paul meant, false humility would simply reflect the fact that these men came in the appearance of a humble teacher, submitted to God's authority, but in reality, it was, for, it was entirely for effect. In reality, they were proud of their accomplishments. By the way, that is always going to be the case for someone who depends on their own works. The two go hand in hand. Someone whose theology is works-based inevitably displays pride in their work. And they are, they are self-confident, self-righteous over the fact that they have good works to, to rest on. And if they come in humility, it is, by definition, false humility. It is merely the appearance of humility. So in either case, whether, whether Paul meant self-denial, these were men denying self for the sake of merit before God, or if he meant it as false humility, in either way, it says the same thing about these men. They trusted in themselves. They put their faith and their trust in themselves, not in God. And in so doing, they displayed that they were not true believers. Secondly, Paul says they worshipped angels. Now this may be interesting to you because you may not have, or, or to us, because we may not have thought much about Worship of angels being a common practice, but in reality, that was a very common practice within the Jewish culture, within Jewish history. If you look, if you want examples of this, just look at the book of Hebrews, a letter written to a Jewish congregation, and the first chapter is on what? On why Christ should be worshipped rather than angels, on why Christ is superior to angels. That's how ingrained angel worship had become in the Jewish mindset, and the reason for it is pretty simple. If they look back on their history, as it's recorded in Scripture, every time something significant happened, or every time God had something significant to, to tell the nation of Israel, inevitably he did it through a mediator, which was an angel. Angels were the mediators of the Old Testament. Even Moses, as you go back and look at the description of the receiving of the law on Mount Horeb, go back and read it carefully, and you'll notice that, that uh, we are told Moses received what he received on the mountain, not directly from God, but through the agency of an angel to, to Moses. So from the Jewish mindset, angels must be the bomb. Angels are the thing, because God always uses an angel whenever he wants to talk to us. That having been true in the Old Testament, though, what they were missing, of course, was that now a greater mediator was available in Christ. And having come, the angels now no longer play that role for any man. And, of course, these men were, re were repeating that error. They were consistently telling the, nation, the, the church in Colossae that they should maintain this respect and admiration and veneration of angels. And Paul is calling them out for that. And uh, they, it, it essentially reflects the fact that they had not understood who Christ was in their life. As the new mediator, they had not come to recognize him as such. Third, they take stand on visions. And, and this is very timely, very timely, in fact. Their truth, their reference point for truth was experiential. It came from their experience. What they experienced was for them truth. And in the case of these men, it was visions, which we don't know exactly what that means. It may not even have been true. It may have simply been they claimed to see visions. But whatever it was, that's where they placed their truth, not in Scripture. 
not in the reality of God's revelation, but in their own personal experiences. That became truth for them. And Paul goes further to say, these visions were inflated by their own minds. The word for inflated there in the Greek literally means to make arrogant. So what what you basically get the impression here is they puffed up these visions in their own mind to be most important to them. More important than scripture, more important than anybody's teaching. As long as those things coincide with their personal experience in the form of these visions, then it's okay. But if it contradicts their vision, they've inflated this vision to the point where it's now their commanding truth. Where have we seen that in modern day, the modern day church, let's say in the last century or two? The Mormons. The entire Mormon faith is based on one man's, quote, vision, which now dominates their theology and all other theology that they might adopt or, or, or you know, bring in from other sources, like the Bible, for example, it's all filtered and interpreted through the visions of that man and what he said was true. That's exactly the, the danger of men who would put experience before the work. Where, where else do we see it in the church today? And not as, and not a, as so much as pernicious as the, Mor- the Mormons may be, but in a more subtle way, I believe we're seeing it creep into even the, the true church today where we are more interested in experience than we are in truth. By virtue of truth, I mean just simple revelation in Scripture. We will favor the, the experience that appeals to us before we will give time and devotion to the boring, mundane, good old Word of God. Now, the fact that you're sitting here listening to me drone on tells me that you're probably not a part of that problem. But there are many for whom this would hold no appeal. And forget me for a moment. They wouldn't sit for many Bible teachers. I don't care who they are. Because their interest is in something flashy and experiential. And, uh, you know, if it's on video, then I'm more interested than if it's live. If it's got music behind it, I'm more interested than if it's just talking. If it's got, you know, a a little workbook with a game associated with it, it's more appealing than if it's just somebody explaining doctrine. Now, there's room for all of that. You all know that. But when one is put in somehow juxtaposed to the other, they're put in competition with one another. One is made to be better in someone's mind than another. You have to ask why. What is the root concern? What's the root interest? If it's down to just, I like the experience, then that draws, I think that should draw a question in our mind about whether we're seeking the right things. Now, that puts us, leaving aside for the moment, the fact that some Bible teaching is just boring or wrong, or it's not the right topic for your needs and your time and your life, that's all, that's all fine. But in general, if Bible, if it's study of the word and knowledge of the word is, is less appealing than an experience in the church, generally, that's a Christian that's probably not maturing. That's a Christian who probably is stuck in a rut of experience rather than a maturing walk into a greater knowledge of the Lord they worship. And having said all that, Paul's not concerned with that here. That was my little soapbox. Paul's concerned with the earlier example of like the Mormons. Someone whose experience draws them entirely out of the word and brings them to a place where they're teaching false teaching and trusting it more than they would the word of God. And that's, that's obviously the the worst extent of that problem. Finally, the last point is, as he talks about them, they don't hold fast to the head, which is Christ, the head of the church, the head of the body as it's being described here. In holding fast to the head, we're told that the church will grow by God's direction. That's how Paul puts it in his last verse there. So let's put all those together just very quickly before we move on. What what do we learn about these men? What are the characteristics of these men who lead the church away from the truth? They falsely claim faith. In Christ. Instead, they pridefully trust in their own works. They claim to worship Christ, but in reality, they worship other things, other idols. Worship an angel, in the case of angels here, today you might find people worshiping Mary, or you might find people worshiping saints, you might find people worshiping their own pastor, in a sense, depending on where they go. They uh, claim to follow scripture, but in reality, they trust their own vision and experiences more than they trust scripture. They claim to be part of Christ's church, the true church, but in reality, they're not holding to the head of the church. They've abandoned the head. They've abandoned Christ. So they're just holding on to, they're just sort of hanging around the edges of the church without actually being a part of it. Then in verse 20, Paul begins to touch on the specific traditions and rules that these teachers have impressed upon the church. So we're finally getting into the more detailed discussion of what was it they were bringing into the church that was so wrong. In chapter 2, verse 20, he says this, If you have died with Christ to the elementary principles of the world, why, as if you were living in the world, do you submit yourself to decrees such as do not handle, do not taste, do not touch, which all refer to things destined to perish with use, in accordance with the commandments and teachings of men? 
These are matters which have, to be sure, the appearance of wisdom in self-made religion and self-abasement and severe treatment of the body, but are of no value against fleshly indulgence. It's a powerful set of verses on liberty. In fact, this whole area from about 216 down is a good area to just bookmark whenever you get into a discussion with someone about what it is you should do in your life to live a Christian life. There are many things we should be aware that we should do. Paul's about to cover a whole bunch of them at the end of this chapter, into chapter 3, rather. But, what is it people are asking you to do, and more importantly, why? And Paul's addressing that here. First, he sets up a test. Speaking to the church, he says, if you have died in Christ or with Christ, meaning you are a believer, and furthermore, you have died with Christ to the elementary principles of this world, what he's referring to, of course, is what we picture by baptism. When you're baptized in the way that it's prescribed in Scripture, you're dumped underwater and you're raised back up, which we understand is a picture of what it means to die in Christ, to be put under the ground figuratively in the case of water, and then resurrected to new life, brought back out of the water. That's what baptism pictures. Now, baptism doesn't accomplish anything spiritually except to show your obedience to what Christ has commanded a believer to do, to go through the baptism to picture our death and resurrection in Christ. Now, in spiritual terms, what does it mean to die with Christ? It means that when you believe in him, at the moment of new faith, at the moment you believe in him and you receive the Holy Spirit, the nature that you were born with, which we inherit from Adam, is literally put to death. It no longer exists. The old man, Paul says, is gone. The new man arrives. In that moment, spiritually, you're different. Now, if you know what Scripture has to teach about the nature of man, there is a part of you that is spirit, and there's a part of you that is flesh. We only see the flesh part. Obviously, spirit can't be seen. It's invisible. But you are two parts. When you were born, you were born with a dead uh, spirit, a spirit of Adam, a spirit that was in, denial, was in uh, opposition to God, was, was an enemy of God, did not seek God, and had no interest in God. And it was mated to a flesh container, a body that was corrupted because of the spirit within it. Brought, bring, it had a corrupted nature to it. When you, are believe, when you become a believer and you are saved, God in that moment gives you the new spirit. So you're halfway to regeneration. You still have the old body, but you now have a new spirit. A spirit that is now alive to God, that can appreciate and respect and, and understand the scripture. That has the power now to not sin. Whereas before you, had, you were enslaved to sin. You had no choice but to sin. You're now in a state where you can receive the things of God and be, and be led by the Holy Spirit and uh, grow in that, but you are still shackled to a body of sin that will constantly drag you back. If you want to know what that's like, read Paul's seventh chapter in the book of Romans. As he talks about, I don't do the things I want to do, and I do the things I don't want to do. Why? Well, because he's two parts. One part fixed, one part not. Glorification is the term we use for the time when you will receive that new physical body that Paul calls the uncorruptible body, the one that will never die, never sin. Once you receive, and it's at the resurrection, it's when you receive your new body for your spirit. When those two pieces come back together, you are fully regenerated, never to sin, never to die. And you lose the part of you that is currently pulling you back into sin on a daily basis. What he's talking about now when he says you have died to Christ is that first step. That spirit change. Your old spirit went into the grave with Christ, never, never to return. And you received a new spirit. Just as he came back to life, you've been brought back to life spiritually. And that's the state in which you now live, the state in which I now live. That, he says, if it's true for you, he says, why do you still live as though you were the old man? Why would you still live a life, a pattern of life, that was true for the old spirit? It makes no sense. If you die with Christ, then we have died to the rules that teach us to gain righteousness by our own works. We have died to the, the old man who thought he was God. We have died to the old nature that thought, I don't need God, I can do it on my own. I just, that was the nature of Adam's fall, and that's the, that's the nature we inherited. He says, submitting to decrees like the ones that these teachers were presenting could be translated coming under this dogma. When you look at the words in the Greek, another way to translate submitting to their decrees is just coming under their dogma. Submitting to their dogma, the word in Greek actually means dogma. It means to willingly embrace a system of thought that contradicts Christianity. And he asks the obvious question. If you've died to Christ, why would you submit to a dogma that is unchristian? Why would you be willing to live in those ways? So the test is this. If you are submitting to them, 
because you believe your actions are a part of your salvation, then you are terribly wrong. On the other hand, if you're submitting to those decrees because you were unaware of how they contradicted the teaching of Scripture, then you're dangerously naive. But either way, you're in a bad place. And Paul says in verse 22 that all those rules are concerning things that are destined to perish anyway. So let me, let me give you the picture of what was probably going on in that church. Men in that church who had come in to teach falsely had begun to tell the people in that church that in order for them to be acceptable to God, beyond just faith in Christ, they had to do certain things. And in, based on what we've seen Paul say already, it's obvious that some of those things involve self-denial. You cannot eat that. Or you cannot drink that. Or you must withhold from food for a day or for a week. Fasting was probably a part of this self-denial. They were telling them that you must observe certain festivals like were done under the Jewish law, that you can't just jettison them, that they were given and you have to retain them. Though we know from what Paul has taught elsewhere that the law is no longer applicable to a Christian in any form, in any of its parts. So they were bringing all these teachings back and laying them on top of faith and saying you must do these things. And Paul is saying don't submit to a dogma that you know is not appropriate for a Christian. And then he says, by the way, these things are telling you you can't eat, or you can eat, or you should eat, or shouldn't eat, etc. He says, these things are all destined to perish anyway. They're transient. They're temporary. They're of this world. They're not eternal. And as an eternal being, as one who's been created for life eternally with Christ, and having been saved to that end, then why are you absorbed in the things of this world? Why are you so focused on what you eat? Who cares? It's all passing away, just like the body you're feeding. What difference does it make is sort of the point he's saying here. In other words, these are meaningless things of the physical creation rather than eternal spiritual things that truly matter. Your focus is completely wrong. It's on the here and now, which doesn't matter, rather than on the eternity that you've been prepared for. And it's this false teaching that's drawn their mind down to this, to this immediate issue rather than to the greater issues of faith. In verse 23, Paul says... These things have the appearance of wisdom. I mean, they seem sensible on their face, but they originate in self-made religion. Self-abasement, here again, is self-denial or false humility. They originate in severe treatment of the body, which again refers to this thought of, if I just sacrifice pleasure, I'm in some way earning merit. God's going to say, oh, that was great that you forego that, that pleasure you could have had. That's, that's great. I'm going to reward you for that. That's the thinking behind the teaching. These teachings have a great irony, and Paul ends on the last verse I read with this irony. They were all directed at supposedly restraining our evil flesh. That was the logic behind them. Paul says the irony of that is those processes have, as he says, no value, no value against indulging in the flesh. So the irony is this. While you're focused on your flesh in these unbiblical ways, I'm going to deny myself. And by the way, I'm not saying fasting is unbiblical. I don't want to paint too broad a brush. Fasting is very biblical. But it's why you do it that matters. But in their case, what were they doing? They were trying to earn favor with God by these works. That's not biblical. I don't care what work you choose, fasting or otherwise. So when your desire is to earn favor, to earn merit, to somehow advance the cause of salvation... I'm here, but if I fast for a day, I'm that much more worthy of salvation. I'm that much closer to it. It's that much more secure. If that's what you're thinking, that's unbiblical. It doesn't work that way. Your works are filthy rags. You're, you're, you're saved despite your works. <laughs> you know, there is nothing you can do to add to the work of Christ on the cross. Nothing. And any attempt to do so is a fa is wasted time. Now, there are a lot of things we can do in light of our salvation. Because we're saved, we're called to good works. But in our mind, the difference is dramatic. In the one case, I'm doing it in order to obtain something. In the other case, I'm doing it because I've obtained something. Which way is true in your mind will dictate which, which group you fall in. Paul is worried about the first group, the one who thinks they're earning something toward their salvation. And he says, the reality is, by focusing on the flesh in this unbiblical way, you're only making matters worse. When you yield to the Holy Spirit in your life for all matters, then you have a hope to achieve something great because the Holy Spirit can do a work in you. But when you turn it around to focusing on what you can do in your own power, if nothing else, you seem to put your focus on the very thing you're trying to avoid. So in the case of eating too much, people who worry about weighing their food and measuring their food and tracking their food, what are they thinking about all day long? Food. Those who say, you know what, I'm going to put this out of my mind. God's going to take care of it. I'm going to live the life he's given me to live. I'm going to focus on what he calls me to do today. And next thing you know, it's 4 o'clock and you haven't eaten. 
by focusing these people on the flesh, they were not focused on spiritual issues at all. They were not thinking in terms of what the Holy Spirit wanted them to do. They were totally inwardly focused on their flesh. And in doing so, they had no power. The only thing that can restrain our flesh from anything is the Holy Spirit in us. When we listen to him and when we yield to him, we naturally give less attention to the flesh. But when we make the flesh the point, we only make the problem worse. Wearsby said it this way. He said, when we make Jesus Christ and the Christian revelation only a part of a total religious system or philosophy, we cease to give him preeminence. When we strive for spiritual perfection or spiritual fullness by means of formulas, disciplines, or rituals, we go backward instead of forward. Christian believers must be aware that mixing their Christian faith with such alluring things as yoga, transcendental meditation, oriental mysticism, and the like, we, that we must also be aware of, a, of deeper life teachers who offer a system for victory and fullness that bypass devotion to Jesus Christ, because in all things he must have the preeminence. So what Wiersbe is saying, and I think it's an accurate statement, is not that any given activity is by itself a problem. Yoga, for example. I've seen Christian, version, Christian versions of yoga. Great. What he's concerned about, and I think the same thing Paul's concerned about, is where does that activity or thought fit into your system of theology? Is it mixed in with Christ so that you see it as part of a formula? Or have you understood his preeminence and in, preeminent, in, in, in that preeminence, you, you know your salvation is based in faith in him alone. And now what you do is simply things that you feel called or delighted by, and they have no bearing on what you feel about your salvation or your, or your eternal security. If you are in that state, then you're healthy in your, in your use of those things, and you have liberty to do them. But where they, if they fit into your systematic theology, then you're on dangerous ground, because you've begun to mix Christ with other things, and that is not the biblical view of Christ. So with that finished, all the criticism of Paul's letter now is kind of wrapped up. And what he's going to turn to now is say, if all of that is what you shouldn't do, what should you do? Chapter 3 is, what should you do? Because clearly it's not, our life as a Christian is not a life of sedentary inactivity. There is activity, yes, coming from a motivation to serve Christ, not to earn salvation. What is that activity? Chapter 3 begins that discussion. Chapter 3, verse 1, we'll just read 1 through uh, well, we'll read 1 through 10. It's a good section as it's, as it's presented. Therefore, he says, if you have been raised up with Christ, keep seeking the things above which where Christ is, seated at the right hand of God. Set your mind on the things above. You see the juxtaposition he's already doing here between earthly focus on temporal things versus a spiritual focus on eternal things. He goes on. He says, set your mind on the things above, not on the things that are on earth. For you have died. And your life is hidden with Christ in God. When Christ, who is our life, is revealed, then you also will be revealed with him in glory. Therefore, consider the members of your earthly body as dead to immorality, impurity, passion, evil desire, and greed, which amounts to idolatry. For it is because of these things that the wrath of God will come upon the sons of disobedience. And in them you also walked when you were living in them, but now you also put them all aside. Anger, wrath, malice, slander, and abusive speech from your mouth. Do not lie to one another, since you laid aside the old self with its evil practices and have put on the new self, who is being renewed to a true knowledge according to the image of the one who created it. You should see in that series of verses a lot of what I've just said already reinforced, right? Among other things, this principle that we need to stop focusing on the things of the body in the here and now, from the standpoint of what it is that matters to us, and we should be focused on the eternal. Second thing you ought to notice in, in what I mentioned there is his repeated reference to having died, the old gone, the new arrived. The old gone, the new arrived. He keeps reinforcing for the reader this understanding that you have been changed. Spiritually, you are a different creature, even if physically you're not yet. And that change is all it takes to achieve these things, not because of your power now, but because of God's power in you, and because he has freed you from slavery to sin. Now, here's the... I often hear people talk about you're either a slave to sin or you're a slave to Christ. True enough. But what does that really mean in real life? What it means is that when you were a slave to Christ, or a slave to sin, rather, a slave to sin, you could not help but sin. Even when you thought you were doing the right thing, helping the little old lady cross the street, deep down inside, the spirit you had at the time was doing it for some selfish, sinful reason, even if you didn't realize it. 
That's the teaching of Scripture. You could not do good. No one does good. No, not one. No one seeks God, Paul says in Romans. So even the mind is deceived to the extent to think that, oh, I wasn't that bad a person. Hogwash. You were 100% evil. <clears throat> it just so happened that you didn't choose to murder or you didn't choose to rob a bank because the penalty in the, in the civil courts was more than you wanted to handle, more than you were willing to accept. But don't kid yourself. If there had been no penalty for stealing from banks, you would have joined in and done it too. That's the nature of our evil person. And that nature was changed when you became a believer. What changed, though, was not evil to perfection. It was changed from slave to sin to now you have choice in that respect. Now you don't have to sin. You now have been awakened to the truth. You're knowledgeable about what God's expectations are. And you have the Holy Spirit in you, which can enable you to avoid sin. But again, it's a choice at this point because you're still shackled to a physical body that is, by its own nature, sinful. You never, if you want proof of that in your own life, that's the purpose of fasting. The purpose of fasting in Scripture, fundamentally, is about recognizing that you have sin in you that is apart from your intellect and your spiritual will. Because if you think about it, if your mind decided you're not going to eat today, who's going to change that? Who could stop that? Should be easy, right? You should be able to say to yourself, I'm not going to eat today and maybe for the next week. Why would you eat? But you and I both know, if you've ever tried to fast, how hard that is. At the end of that first day, especially if you wait into the second day, all you can think about is eating. Well, where is that coming from? Your mind has already decided you're not going to eat. Why does your mind keep returning to the thought of eating? Because your physical body is pulling you in that direction. It's the same in lusts of the flesh that come in a sexual context. You say you're not going to look at that woman or that man. You said you're not going to have those thoughts, and yet they return. Where is that coming from? You've decided you're not going to do it, but yet it comes back. That is God's way of demonstrating. Those practices are God's way of demonstrating to us that we do, in fact, have a physical attraction to the wrong thing that is separate from our mind and separate from our spirit. And we war with it. And taking command of it is part of a good, maturing walk in Christ. So Paul says, I discipline my body. I deal with it. I try to contend with it because it is me, but yet it is apart from me. And that fact is what's causing, in the case of this, this, these opening verses in chapter 3, that fact is causing Paul to draw the attention of the church back to, if you're truly interested in being in command of your body and of pleasing God through your body, then let's get to what really matters. Not what you eat, not what you drink. It's these things. It's sin in the purest sense, in the way you use your body. Let's look at some of the points he makes. Point number one, seek what is from above, not what comes from the minds of men. Today in the church, and I think this is a caution for all of us, there is a ton of teaching material, programs, you know, national events and programs that span churches and the like, that are flooding into the church that really, when you look at their content, they are little more than man-made philosophy dressed up with Christianese and a few Bible verses here and there. But in reality, the undertones and the thinking is all here and now. What, what, what this world has for us. What we do in this world. How we make the most of this world. It rarely takes us to where we should be, which is eternal matters. Remember, when you've been with Christ for a thousand years, how much of the 40 you lived here or the 60 you lived here will be on your mind? How much of it will you really be worrying about <coughs> Right, And when you move beyond the thousand years with Christ and you're now in an eternity with God the Father in the New Jerusalem, which goes on indefinitely, how much of this short span of your history will you think about? That's what we should be saying to ourselves constantly. And so a decision of what I eat in the next 20 minutes, who cares? Just do whatever makes sense and move on. It's not a spiritual matter. It has no bearing on your spiritual destination and certainly not on your spiritual maturity. And likewise, some of the church programs that have become very popular these days draw us back into the here and now rather than to the future, to our eternal destination. And in, in light of where we're headed eternally, how can I serve God now? Yes, there's things to do now. But in light of what I am to be, not in light of what I'm trying to achieve for myself now. That's the distinction. Second point, verses 3 and 4 cover the second point. Your life was buried with Christ, like we've said already, but our earthly life with all our petty cares and our petty concerns, that ended with our new life in Christ. The only life that matters to us now as a Christian, or should matter to us now, is the life we have in Christ, which is a way of saying our work and service to Him in this short period of waiting before He returns. So it's just like the parables. The Master has left the house. The servants are still there, hanging out, taking care of matters in His absence. 
But you know he's coming back any time. You know when he comes back, he's going to want to see something done. And you know that there is going to be a test of sorts when he arrives. Not a test of your salvation, but a test of reward for who's been the most faithful in my absence. If that's how you're thinking, and you recognize that his return is literally imminent, no, no deadlines in Scripture, could happen any time, then you're going to be far more interested in what he's thinking of you now than you will be about what your neighbor thinks, or about whether or not you, you've achieved everything the world says you should achieve. And you're certainly not going to be interested in the teacher who comes along and says, you know, you need to start you know, eating something different than you're eating. You're going to be like, oh, come on. That, can't, that, that is so far from my interest level right now. That is so below anything I care about. I don't have time for that. That's the reaction a Christian should have in some sense as they look forward to their new life in Christ in eternity. Barclay says it this way. Sometimes we say of a man, music is his life. Sport is his life. Or he lives for his work. Such a man finds life and all that life means in his music or in sport or in work, as the case may be. But for the Christian, Christ is his life. Jesus Christ dominates his thought and fills his life. Now, I don't know how many of us can actually say that's true about ourselves, but I think what Barclay's saying is that should be true of all Christians. That should be what marks us. Point three in Paul's verses I've read is that the Christian life does have an aspiration to be disciplined in its body. You know, there is, in fact, for the Christian, a desire that the body be sin-free if possible, though it can't happen in this life. But to the extent we can reach it, that's our goal. So it's not about, as I said earlier, do nothing. It's certainly do something. But here's the Christian method. If what he said in chapter 2 is the false method, what's the, what's the right one? Here's the Christian method. He says, number one, consider the earthly members of your body to be dead. What, is the, what do they mean by that? What are, you, what are the earthly members of your body? The earthly members of your body. I don't think it gets any more complicated than your eyes, your ears, your mouth, your hands, your feet. Consider them dead to Christ. Which would mean, and this is actually something in the Greek that's in the aorist tense. Now that's a tense in the Greek that we don't have in English. You can't conjugate an English verb in the aorist tense. But here's what it means in an approximate way. It's a tense that says there's a decisive initial act, which then introduces a finished, continuing state. So when I use that tense, it's something that started and finished in a moment, but it established a new state that continues indefinitely. So he's saying, consider these members of your body to be dead. They died in a moment when you came to be a believer, and they remain dead from that point forward. They just no longer matter. They no longer matter to you. Think about Paul's own life if you want to know what that looks like in reality. Paul was stoned. He was shipwrecked. He was starved. He was cold. He was in jail. Now, if you and I, in the way the world thinks today had looked at his life and wanted to give him counsel, I'm pretty sure the counsel he would receive from the world is, number one, you've got to get some good footwear if you're going to walk around. Number two, you've got to start eating right, treating your body right. You're not going to be here to serve God unless you treat your body right. Number three, you need to be nicer to people so they won't stone you. Number, you know what I'm saying? It's all about the here and now. Preserve your body. And we add a spiritual subtext by saying, because that way you'll be around to serve God. The nonsense of that is, you'll be here as long as God wants you to be here. I don't care what you do. Number two... The point is he sacrificed his body because it didn't matter. His point was, I've got a body, let's use it to God's glory, and if it gets stoned along the way, so be it. It doesn't matter to me. Consider the members of your body dead, not to your own fleshly desires. I'm not saying go out and treat your body crazy because you want to have fun jumping off buildings. He's saying to Christ, consider them dead to Christ, meaning you've handed it over to Christ, use it any way you want. It's dead to me, I don't care about it anymore. But you, Christ, you use my body however you want. And that's now my purpose in living the rest of my life. And it could be that I live in luxury. It could be I live in poverty. It could be I live in good circumstances or harmful circumstances. I don't care. That's up to you, Christ. But whatever you need to do, do it. That's what he's saying here. Which is a stark contrast to the teaching of those earlier men, right? Who said it's all about the body. And you doing the right things to it. And Paul's like, it has nothing to do with your body. It has to do with your spirit. Let God take care of using your body however he wants to. And here are the things you put to death in a very specific way. He begins with passions of the flesh. You see, if you have these problems in your life, your body is of less use to God. And I'm not saying because he's not powerful enough to overcome it. I'm saying because he will often, as, as we see evidenced in Scripture, leave men to their sin, to their own detriment, as a means of disciplining them, as a means of letting them see the error of their ways, and, and in his timing and according to his will, turn them back to him. But these are things we should recognize in ourselves as impediments to serving God, to being useful to him. And they are in this order immorality. And these words in the English 
have a very specific Greek word behind each one. I want to give you the sense of what they all mean. So, immorality literally means illicit sexual intercourse. Right? It's a very specific reference. So, we're talking about people who engage in that kind of immorality. Stop that. Just consider your body dead to that. If that's a part of your life, stop it and be done with it. Number two, impurity, which is any form of moral corruptness. Could be uh, embezzlement. You know, could, could be um, some other kind of impurity or immorality in your life. Passion, which is an uncontrolled, illegitimate desire. We often think of sexual passion or, or pornography as an example of that, but it could take the form of other kinds of passions as well. Drinking could take the form of, of spending in some sense. Greed actually brings in the spending component on its own in that last statement. But, but anytime you have an uncontrollable passion that dominates your perspective and your thinking in your life. Greed, then, is the specific materialistic desires, which he says amounts to idolatry. It's a pretty powerful statement. It says that when money and the spending of money, the obtaining of it and the using of it, dominates our thinking, it's greed, and that greed is idolatry. Therefore, he says, if you've, been, if you've died to Christ, why would you share in these traits? And then he makes a very interesting statement. He says, those were the traits that defined the unbeliever. Before we all came to faith, those were the traits that did define us. Now, you may not have shared in every one of them equally. We all have our favorites, <laughs> to put it in simple words. But we have them. He's saying, okay, now think about this logically. You've been given a new spirit, one that is no longer enslaved to sin. So why is it you keep doing the same things? I mean, if, if in fact you're a different person spiritually, you've now been enabled to step out of those patterns that you know are not the right pattern, then why do you keep submitting to them? It's a simple question. The only answer to that is what? You're not yielding to the spirit. You're, you're, re, you're remaining in that state of listening to the flesh, not to the spirit. And, you know, if you're sitting here thinking, well, gee, I, I might be the only one who's doing this. Well, let me just help you with that. No, you're not. You're, everyone in this room, every Christian does this to some extent. We constantly battle with our sinful body. Paul himself did. He said that in chapter 7 of Romans. But it doesn't excuse it. It doesn't acknowledge that it's okay because everyone else has this problem. It's okay. And it doesn't change the fact that we are obligated to deal with it, to continually deal with it, not to excuse it, not to ignore it. Paul says in the, last, in the next set of verses I read, he picks up with another list. Now, what's interesting is these two lists are different on one major way, on one, one major axis. On the first group we've covered, it was passions of the body. In the second area, it's all speech-related, which is interesting, especially when you know the book of James where he talks about the tongue like being the rudder of a boat, how important it can be to, to, to our overall righteousness, our lived-out righteousness. It suggests to me that as Paul takes these two groups and separates them, that there is equal weight in Paul's mind between these two. So is to say it this way. For those of you who have no issue with spiritual, I mean with uh, sexual immorality, or with passion, or even with greed, if you can sit here with some confidence and say honestly to yourself, and those aren't my, really my problems, I don't really struggle with those things. Well, good for you, and that's a good thing. But consider that perhaps some of these other issues take equal weight, so that if you are guilty of one of them, you're no better than someone who may have been guilty on the first list, so to speak. In other words, the second, group is, the second group is just as serious. And I would argue more pervasive in the church. More common. Listen to the list here. Anger, which by its Greek word means an attitude of hostility. Hard to avoid attitudes of hostility from time to time, but we are to do that. Wrath, which is a verbal outburst of a hateful thought. So it's speaking a hateful thought about something or somebody. Malice, which is, and this is the hardest one, I think this is one we all suffer from more than we realize. It means a vicious disposition that harbors ill intent for others. You ever wish the worst for somebody? You ever hoped that they'll get what they deserve? Well, you know, if that was true from God's perspective toward us and we got what we deserve, where would we be? But that's what malice means. Malice means at any point harboring this disposition, this ill disposition towards someone that says, I, I hope something bad happens to them. Even if it's just because you think they deserve it. That's malice. That's something we should put aside, consider dead to Christ. Slander, which is just insulting or injurious speech. Gossip, I think, fits easily within that category. Even when we say it's because we need to know for a prayer. <laughs> you know, or because we have interest in their situation and we have a desire to know more. How can I help them? Tell me the details. You know. Slander is, is taking place in many cases, whether we realize it or not. Abusive speech, which just means profane speech. This is profanity. This is four-letter words. This is using words that we know are considered profane in our culture. And then finally, lying, which is deceptive or dishonest speech. 
The imperative against lying there is especially strong in the Greek. So he has separated lying out almost to put it in a category by itself. So it's double injurious. You know, not only are you making Christ look bad, but you're actually injuring his own body. You're injuring Christ's body by your offense against it. So if you want to address, to wrap that up, if you want to address the sin nature of the body, here's the, the advice I think Paul's saying, if you can sum it up in a sentence. Don't play around the edges of the problem by trying to discipline the body in these unbiblical ways, in false humility, or in teachings of self-denial and, and the traditions of men, things that can't save you. If you're really interested in your body and what God thinks of your body, then don't play around like that. Let's take it seriously. Put to death the old nature and its instincts. Set them aside once for all. And then Paul says, do this instead. Verse 11. He talks about this renewal of the new man in, in verse 11, in which there is no distinction between Greek and Jew, circumcised and uncircumcised, barbarian and Scythian, slave and free men. But Christ is all and in all. So, as those who have been chosen of God, holy and beloved, put on a heart of compassion and kindness and humility, gentleness and patience, bearing with one another and forgiving each other, whoever has a complaint against another, just as the Lord forgave you, so also should you. All the groups Paul mentions there were groups that were often used to differentiate men in his day. These were Today, what do we have as groups? We certainly have socioeconomic kinds of, of distinctions we make in culture. We have race. That's kind of a hot-button issue in our culture, right? We have people who live in the north versus the south, the coasts versus the flyover states, whatever you call it, you know, whatever people talk about, right? We have all these ways of distinguishing in our culture. These were the ways people distinguished in Paul's culture. Were you Greek or were you Jew? Were you a Roman citizen or not? Were you a barbarian? Where, where was your background, your family, your history? Paul says those distinctions disappear when you are in Christ. And likewise today, they disappear for us. For those, and I've seen this in the ministry God's given me in this church and elsewhere. You know, if I show up on another state and teach in a church I've never been in before and meet people I've never met before, and, I, and they have the Holy Spirit in them and they are Christian, there is a connection that is so instant and deep, it exceeds uh, family relationships I have within my own family that are yet still unbelievers. And it instantly gets to that level where for decades I haven't been able to achieve that with a family member, a blood family member. It's a remarkable testimony to the brotherhood of the believers. That you suddenly find yourself in a, a true family, a loving family of people who have not made their decision to love you on the basis of who you are, where you came from, or you know, the color of your skin. That, that all passes away. And all they notice is the Holy Spirit in you and God's gifting and a desire to minister and they, that's what they receive. That's the true brotherhood of believers. Paul says, that's what now unites you as a body. So all this discord over what festivals you're following versus what Sabbath you've chosen, he's saying, that should just as much pass from your eyes and not be an issue with, with respect to how you fellowship, how you see another believer. Those distinctions have disappeared. He says, you are the ones chosen by God. You were the ones chosen by God. You know, when he looked out over the, t the span of all humanity through all of eternity, as Ephesians chapter 1 tells us, he knew you before the foundations of the earth and in you and chose you in Christ before the foundations of the earth. That fact alone should humble us and awe us to the point where now there is no barrier for what we would be willing to do in response to a God that shows us that kind of grace. From the, down the quarters of time before we could even have known that he was prepared to do that. He says, remember, you were chosen by God, he says. And in being chosen by God, Paul says, as those who have been chosen by God, holy and beloved. Now, is he saying we're holy because we have achieved the perfection that is holiness? No, of course not. So what does he mean? He means, again, God is looking at you today no differently than he looked at you before you were born. No differently than he looked at you before the foundations of the earth. What is that? He looked at you as his child, a child of the king, saved unto eternity with him. So from his perspective, where you sit right now is this little blip on a timeline that he doesn't even take place in. He's above it all. And so for him, you're holy, not because of where you stand today, but because of where he knows he will bring you one day. So if you've been chosen, if you're seen as holy, if you're beloved by the Lord who has saved you, then when you do things, you have to ask yourself, am I doing things? to achieve something that was, in fact, achieved before the foundations of the world were even laid. And if you say that to yourself, you realize, well, then why am I trying to add to that? Why do I think I'm somehow helping it along? 
It's a nonsense thought once you recognize your position from God's perspective. You say, well, what do I do then? These are the things now that should mark you as a Christian because you are beloved and because God is in you and prepared to work these things out in your life. I think that the reason so many Christians struggle, and myself included at times, of course, struggle to live out the holiness that we're called to live out, the reason that is a struggle for us is because we're trying to do it ourselves. The reason it's hard is because we believe we can do it. The reason it's hard is because we believe God expects us to do it. He knows we can't, and he doesn't ask us to do it, not in the sense of our own power. What he asks us to do is yield to him. God always provides to those who are tempted the opportunity for escape from their temptation, the off-ramp, if you will, from the freeway of temptation that we find ourselves on. The problem is not that we can't stop moving. The problem is we aren't taking the off-ramps. That when God, when we're sitting down to do the thing we know we shouldn't do or say the thing we know we shouldn't say, and God immediately gives us the option to shut up, he shows us how to avoid the problem, how to say no, how to, you know, we just ignore it. It's not that we can't, it's that we won't. And God is at work to do that if we will yield. When we try to do it in our own power, we will, we will fail. And that's a sign in itself of the weakness of the flesh. Let's go to the Lord in prayer and finish. Dear Heavenly Father, please, Father, we pray today that, as we've heard in your word, you would work a work in us, that we would live a holy life, Father, by the power of your Spirit. Father, we know the conviction of sin all too well. And we know, Father, how it displeases you when we make those mistakes. And, Father, we recognize that in the times past, as we've tried to live a life that is holy, so often, Father, it fell short. So often, Father, the, the enemy, as he prays on our mind, convinces us that you will not accept us unless we can manage our own way to succeed in these challenges. And, Father, your word has come today to encourage us to know that while you do ask and expect that our life would change because of our new spirit, you also understand, Father, that without your power in us to make that change, it won't happen. So, Father, I pray that we would yield. I pray that each of us, by what we've heard today, would go out renewed in our commitment to let you lead us into the ways and the paths that you've appointed and that we would deny ourselves, Father. We would listen to you and not our flesh. By your power, Father, we know we can be conformed to your Son. We look forward to that. One day, Father, to be in perfection again by your power. Thank you for the teaching opportunity, Father. Thank you for the ears of those who've listened. And may we come back next week, if it be your will, to continue. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen.